Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. The Anthropocene. Which you may or may not be familiar with, but it's this idea among geologists that that human impacts have become so pervasive and profound and permanent that we have, in effect, created a new age in geology so that future rocks will kind of bear the record of our passing. And that's because of, of course, uh, climate change, but also the extinction of species, uh, things like blowing up nuclear bombs. I'm very pleased today to introduce David Bielow. David is the science curator at TED Talks, as well as a contributing editor for Scientific American. He recently published The Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization and Earth's Newest Age, in which he explores the emergence of the Anthropocene, the period during which human activity has been the dominant influence on climate and the environment, and he searches for ideas on how humans might live on a fast-changing planet. Thank you very much, David, for taking the time to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast today. I'm very much looking forward to talk to you about your book, The Unnatural World. Thanks for having me. So um, you've, you've recently written The Unnatural World. It, what, what is your uh, work? What, what do you do? Well, uh, my day job is I'm the science curator at uh, TED, TED Talks. Um, for those who don't know, they're... Um, you know, 12 to 18 minute talks spreading uh, theoretically good ideas, like not unlike sustainability. Um, and what does it mean to be the science curator? It means that I pick the various um, science topics and science ideas and science speakers and then kind of help them get ready for the, uh, for the stage. And then I also help out with, I don't know, a general view on science for all the other things that TED does, like uh, our ideas blog, uh, the TED Fellows program, where we um, host um, innovative thinkers and, and help them kind of get their projects off the ground, um, and, and the TED Prize, where we give a, a million dollars to, to somebody with a, with a great idea. Uh, but then, uh, I guess by night, I uh, remain a... Um, a journalist and, and writer. Uh, I worked for many years at Scientific American, uh, a science magazine, and uh, I still write for them and a variety of other publications. And over the course of many years, I was able to, to, to cobble together uh, the writing uh, for this book, The Unnatural World. Right. When you say cobbled together, I, I think uh, that's an understatement. There's a tremendous amount of research, I think, um, that's gone into that book and a lot of thinking. Um, so can you talk about, uh, just say, what, 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 what is the book about? How did you come to write it, David? So uh, about 10 years ago, if you can believe that, I, I, I had been, I don't know, covering uh, climate change and other kind of environmental issues for about 10 years at that point. And... Uh, I was thinking, you know, I that we, this will sound ironic that we had kind of hit a hit a wall. Um, that uh, just kind of talking about climate change or, or or talking about sustainability, talking about all these environmental problems in their separate um, silos wasn't solving in the problem wasn't solving the problem, but was in some cases actually exacerbating the problem. Um, I guess one of the Biggest examples of that for me is um, the drive for uh, corn ethanol here in the United States. Uh, so we replaced some of our gasoline supply with uh, ethanol brewed from our uh, corn crops. I'm from originally from the Midwest, and so I, I could see what uh, kind of planting out the entire middle part of the United States in corn did uh, to the environment. And that was meant to help uh, with, with climate change, but of course ended up uh, exacerbating things like... Um, the dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi, uh, water pollution and the like. So I was hoping to find some way to explore these topics together um, uh, because I really do feel that if we're going to solve challenges like climate change and energy poverty, we have to solve those challenges 
together, not separately. If we solve them separately, we'll end up with uh, with things like uh, like corn ethanol, and we'll end up exacerbating problems. So I happened upon this term, and it's a terrible term, um, the Anthropocene, uh, which you may or may not be familiar with, but it's this idea among geologists that that human impacts have become so pervasive and profound and permanent that we have, in effect, created a new age in geology so that future rocks will kind of bear the record of our passing. And that's because of, of course, uh, climate change, but also the extinction of species, uh, things like blowing up nuclear bombs. Um, so a lot of things fall under this, um, this rubric. Um, and so I thought that might be a really interesting way to explore um, this idea of solving these environmental challenges together, because the Anthropocene, of course, brings them all together in one um, concept, if you will. Uh, it took me about, I don't know, five or six years to convince anyone else that that was a really good idea for a book. Uh, and then it took, uh, you know, three or four years of um, uh, travel and research to actually deliver said book, because, of course, when you're talking about something that's global in nature, like the Anthropocene, um, you know, you can kind of go anywhere and write about anything and it will um, fit the narrative. So the, the problem becomes more what not to include than what to what to include. Fascinating, fascinating. Now you talked about the Anthropocene, and, and uh, as you say, it's a, it's a it's a strange word, um, increasingly in in common usage, I guess, uh, particularly around climate change and um, other related issues, extinction, particularly. Um, I have heard some people say it, it should rightly be called the Capitalocene. <laughs> That's yeah. associated with you know industrialization and uh, capitalism. I don't know what you think of that. Well, I think uh, I think everybody has a proposal for what for a better name for the Anthropocene, and there's no doubt that uh, you know kind of one of the the leading markers of the Anthropocene is uh, is capitalism is is this. Um, uh, rush to um, kind of extract as much value from from nature as possible, and uh, you know, sell that sell that value on the open market, and uh, and you know, not worry too much about what happens to the forest, or the animals of the forest, or the water, or or anything else. Um, so, capitalocene is one proposal. Piracene is an, is another one. Kinesocene, I mean, uh, just straight up obscene. Uh, some people like. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of uh, different proposals, but for better or worse, uh, we seem to be stuck with the Anthropocene one way or the other. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I stick with that as much as I dis as much as I dislike it. <laughs> yes, that's a slightly ugly word. Yes. Um, now, did you start out with a thesis um, and and uh, an idea behind this? I mean, what, what what was the question you were you, you identified, as you said, this period, uh, you know, this geological period, this nascent or this p p p latent, this uh, period which is upon us now. What, what was the underlying, I guess, thesis or idea that you set out to explore? Yeah. So basically, first, I wanted to kind of <clears throat> explore this idea of the Anthropocene. What is it? Are we in it? Um, and I essentially, not to not to spoil the book, because please go out and read it. Uh, I I I opt for uh, yes, yes we are, and I lay out the the case for that. And then, really, more of the book is spent talking about uh, well, if we're in it, what should we do to make it uh, better rather than worse? Um, because for a lot of people, the idea of the Anthropocene is 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 very. Uh, Scary, doom laden, feels like uh, the end of the world. Climate change is is getting worse. Um, extinction may be getting worse. Ocean acidification getting worse. All these environmental challenges seem to be um, trending in the wrong uh, direction. Um, but uh, as as you know from reading the book, what I did was kind of travel around the world and find uh, the people, the perhaps uh, unusually optimistic people. Uh, who are trying to make for a better Anthropocene by uh, solving some of these challenges or, or trying to show how they could be solved if, um, if some of these solutions were kind of adopted at, at scale. And that ranges from, from scientists to uh, government bureaucrats to, uh, you know, little girls in, uh, in, in far western China. Yes, 
amazing range um, of, of, of uh, not just locales, geographies, uh, ideas, people. <laughs> um, yeah, it's tough to keep it narrow when it's, uh, you know, when it's the Anthropocene, when it's global. Yes, yes. And, 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 and so, you know, you, you, you identified, and we can maybe talk about some of the, the uh, ideas that you, you find particularly exciting, um, that, that, that are out there and this spirit of innovation and so forth. Did, did that, are you optimistic? Did you feel, um, I mean, uh, do, you, do you feel like business as usual, um, you know, that there's an innate innovation quality to the world today, power of technology, people can do things for so much smaller money, people are much more aware, there's a lot more uh, progressive voices, things like that. Um, or, or do you think something else needs to change? Well, it's a bit of both. So I'm, uh, I am heartened by kind of the, the optimism and innovation I see out there in people. Um, you know, we are the problem, for better or worse, and, uh, and we are also the solution. And, and the good news is there are solutions out there. The problem, what, what I guess makes me more pessimistic, is that um, these uh, solutions are not being done kind of um, together in a coordinated fashion. So um, you might be uh, trying to combat climate change while, while say, ignoring energy poverty. And, and like I said, you will not solve either of those problems um, in isolation. They're also not happening um, at the speed uh, that is required. Um, so if we're going to transition away from, from fossil fuels, uh, we need to do that uh, as quickly as possible. And as we all know from uh, reading the newspaper or, or, or checking tweets uh, online, that is not necessarily what's happening, particularly uh, here in the United States. Um, although there are some reasons for optimism uh, here and then, and then finally, it's not not only is it not happening at the speed that's required; it's not happening at the scale that's required. So, if you think just about energy, uh, you know we still get roughly eighty percent of all the energy that we use all around the world: driving cars, electricity, you name it, um, from fossil fuels. Um, that is, despite you know a couple decades of uh, renewables growing. Uh, faster and faster than than anything else. Um, so we really need to scale those solutions up quicker. And so the pessimism, I guess, is is that what we lack is not the solutions. What we lack is the uh, is the will, is the is the political will and uh, you know personal will to make uh, the changes that are required. And so ultimately, what I decided is that uh, the Anthropocene is a problem of of not nature nature but uh, but human nature yes yes and we're living right through that now aren't we some of the consequences yes, we are. Of, of, of change of uh, will and uh, and the role of, of governments particularly in the u.s uh, and maybe uh, you know I, I certainly like to come back to that uh, a key question i guess is uh, I, you know i do a podcast where i talk to social entrepreneurs and it's amazing the proliferation of of enthusiastic capable skilled motivated social entrepreneurs uh people innovators working around the world in so many domains a key question that that comes up again and again is this question of scaling and mm -hmm. what are the few things that can have the biggest impact and i don't and i wonder whether you have uh, some thoughts on a few ideas of the many, many ideas that you came across that you think have the most potential in that sense? Well, it's, uh, it's going to sound counterintuitive, but uh, uh, the biggest thing that anybody can do to solve any of these um, environmental challenges is kind of um, the twin social goal of, of educating girls and empowering um, women. Now that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or or ocean acidification or or species extinction, um, but across the board, when you uh, when 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 women are educated and empowered, uh, we we see around the world uh, better environmental outcomes. Um, that ranges from everybody's uh, favorite um, <clears throat> bugaboo, which is uh, human population. Uh, to, you know, just um, uh, better management of, say, uh, forestry resources or, or water resources. Um, uh, you know, and I say this as a guy, uh, apparently the ladies are, uh, are better 
um, and kind of conserving those resources um, uh, than than the Anthropos in Anthropocene um, uh, would kind of muck things up uh, being in being in charge. So that's actually uh, the number one thing um, uh, that 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 people can do and, and can fight for. And that seems like um, you know that that falls well that falls right within the social entrepreneur uh, space, but it seems very divorced from environmental problems. But I'm here to tell you that uh, you know based on my research and travels, that is definitely um, uh, not the case. And it actually was one of the greatest sources of optimism for me uh, was the fact that that particular um, social transformation uh, is 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 happening in places all around the world. So. Uh, in South Africa, in uh, in China, uh, you name it, wherever I, wherever I went, um, uh, things are changing for for girls and women, and changing for the better. And that's good news uh, for a better Anthropocene. Fascinating. I didn't know that, David. I knew there'd been progress, and I know it's a it's an important issue on on many funders' minds. And I've spoken to some uh, key, uh, interesting social entrepreneurs working in the education space. Um, but that's very interesting to hear. In one sense, you, that's uh, the answer to the question in terms of one thing you can do that have a big impact. I guess, on the other hand, potentially, that's quite a fragmented problem as well, yeah. in the sense that it's tied into local education systems, regional education systems in, in different countries, and quite a difficult thing, I think, to get at in, in, a, in any kind of scale way. Yes, it's a, um, well, so you think about it, the, uh, um, the social movements that, uh, that are happening right now in, in human history uh, are, in fact, happening at a speed and scale that is, that is unprecedented. Um, and I think the first such uh, kind of global movement was the, the, the war against, uh, the moral war against, uh, against slavery. And that went from uh, you know, being unthinkable and the um, uh, idea of just a few kind of, uh, frankly, they were uh, thought to be deranged uh, folks, who, you know, who had a real kind of uh, moral purpose uh, to being, you know, broadly accepted uh, all around all around the globe. And, you know, slavery is not something that is acceptable anymore. And that is a, a massive revolution in, in human nature. Uh, frankly, or think about um, uh, tobacco and what has happened there. Uh, you know, I remember when I was growing up, the the sci-fi comic books of the future, you know, showed flying cars and whatever else. But those flying cars were were always driven by kind of brillantined dads who were who were still smoking cigarettes. Uh, now the flying cars are are kind of slowly and surely starting to to appear, but the the brillantine dads uh, smoking cigarettes they're they're not on the scene. Um, so I think we. Uh, overestimate um, kind of the pace of technological change, but we underestimate the power of, uh, of social change. And it, it is happening, and it's, it's happening uh, fast. We just need it to happen um, even faster. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, talking about technology, um, America and West Coast particularly, uh, great technological prowess, and there are many voices that, that look to technology to provide solutions, uh, a silver bullet to just uh, tools that can uh, transform productivity in so many different areas. Well, what do you think? Uh, uh, what's your sense uh, after the research that you've done on the potential of technology to help deal with these questions? Well, we're certainly going to need it, right? Um, whether let's just take the example of, uh, of climate change. Uh, we have already uh, burned enough fossil fuels to to change the climate. We're we're seeing that all around us, and uh, and we're continuing to burn fossil fuels. So we're kind of building up this uh, this burden um, in the atmosphere, and eventually we're going to have to clean that up. And that's where uh, technology comes in, both the technology to replace the fossil fuel burning in the first place, but also potentially the technology to kind of suck CO two back back out of the sky and, and, and do something with it, whether that be turning it back into uh, a fuel of some kind or burying it or, or whatever might be done. And so those are our technology solutions that, um, um, that we're going to need. And I, uh, as you know from reading the book, spent some time uh, kind of pursuing Elon Musk, who I think, um, um, for those who, who don't know him, 
uh, in some ways personifies this uh, Silicon Valley ethos of, uh, you know, move fast and break things in an attempt to uh, change the world. So, for example, he has an electric car company in Tesla. He has a solar power company in Solar City, which has now been absorbed by Tesla. Um, and Tesla has also built the world's largest uh, battery factory in partnership with, uh, with Panasonic. And then as kind of a, a side project, he has, uh, uh, you know, uh, a space uh, company called SpaceX, which he which he hopes will one day take him to Mars. So he's not somebody who who dreams small, and that's why I picked him as kind of the personification of this um, technological uh, wizardry uh, approach. But uh, the reality is, even as much as kind of Elon Musk uh, can do in offering a kind of um, soup to nuts uh, solution, so you've got your electric car which obviously doesn't emit anything, but it has to get its electricity from somewhere, so hopefully it gets it, at least in Elon's view, at least in Elon's view from, uh, you know, solar panels he's put on your on your rooftop. Um, uh, and then suddenly, you know, we're driving and, and living without, uh, without having to burn too many fossil fuels uh, or as many uh, fossil fuels. And, uh, um, you know, you've kind of solved a little bit of the of the climate conundrum but the reality is for for something like that to to happen it takes uh, government policy as you mentioned it takes uh, social change so people need to become you know more fond of the uh, uh, solar roof tiles and solar panels on the roof than they are of say chimneys which are kind of a, a relic uh, technology on our houses uh, uh, a nice one but uh, you know not too many folks are relying on, on wood to heat their homes um, uh, anymore. And, uh, you know, um, it may be that the social change we're really looking for is um, is something that, uh, you know, gets rid of the car altogether um, uh, or, or transitions us to many, many fewer uh, cars via autonomous uh, vehicles. So... Um, Yes, uh, you know, individuals can uh, can kind of help and inspire, and, and we need that. But we also need kind of the mass uh, movement uh, to get these uh, changes at the at the speed and scale that is required uh, to you know to really replace eighty uh, percent of energy. And and I should note, right, that um, part of the reason people want to call it the capitalist scene is because uh, you know. Fossil fuels uh, kind of empowered uh, capitalism to, to, to eat the world, if you will, and um, uh, the burning of those fossil fuels, that's really the, the best marker of this Anthropocene, if there, if there is one. There are these tiny little balls of soot that are left after you burn fossil fuels, whether it's natural gas, oil, or coal, and those tiny little balls of soot uh, can now be found everywhere on Earth, uh, you know, from the remotest uh, reaches of the Amazon to the remotest reaches of Antarctica. It's there. Um, it'll be trapped in the ice if there's any ice left, uh, uh, but it will certainly be trapped in lake sediments and other things that will be future rocks. And we know these tiny little balls of soot last because we found them from 66 million years ago when some volcanism after an asteroid hit the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. Uh, some volcanism set off similar burning and released a bunch of soot like this um, into the atmosphere, it settled into the lake sediments, and we can find it in the rock today. So there's a good chance that our, our fossil fuel burning will be around, you know, in rocks 66 million years from now. And the only question is whether it will be, you know, whether there will be any humans around to, uh, uh, to find that soot in the rock record. Absolutely. And uh, in parallel, plastics, Clearly, a yes. ma major, you know. That, that's another alternative name, the Plasticine, um, because <laughs> you know, that was a, uh, yeah. a, a huge step change, and, and plastic is, is truly everywhere um, as well. Uh, the, the trick with the Plasticine is it's going to actually be more like fossils, because uh, plastics are, um, you know, they're not so easy to... Uh, degrade on human timescales, but on geologic timescales, um, they'll be kind of uh, cooked away by the Earth's heat and pressure, uh, but they may leave um, marks in the rock. So your your vinyl record could be, uh, let's say, etched into uh, into rock. And if anybody could, uh, you know, figure that out 66 million years from now, they might be able to play your 
I don't know your your favorite band um, from uh, from a, a plastic fossil, and of course we have uh, uh, new rocks um, known as uh, plastic glomerate. This is when uh, a kind of lava flow interacts with all the plastic on the on the beaches in say Hawaii and forms this strange um, kind of agglomeration uh, rock that's uh, that's pretty permanent. Um, so yeah, uh, plastics is another big way we're going to leave our our mark on the planet. And then one that uh, folks tend not to think about uh, uh, anymore, but uh, is still, um, you know, one of the big existential risks uh, facing us is, uh, is nuclear weapons, and, and especially all the nuclear weapons testing that went on in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and, and even into the 70s and 80s. Um, by blowing up all those uh, nuclear bombs, we actually put... Uh, new elements on the Earth that had never been here before in all the 4.5 billion years of Earth's history. So plutonium never existed on Earth prior to our, our nuclear weapons. And that stuff will be in the rock record uh, for the foreseeable future. Yes. Shocking. It's, it's, the scale is, is, is terrifying, really, isn't it? The, the, um, we, we see ourselves as, as uh, you know, ephemeral or evanescent or short-lived, and yet the, 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 the damage that's been done to the, the planet itself will, will seemingly continue into the timeless future. Well, it's, it's, it is hard to imagine, right? You look at the ocean or, or the sky and you think this is, you know, vast and, and untamable and, uh, you know, how could human beings have an, an impact on it? Um, but uh, the reality is... We are having that impact. Um, uh, you can see it all around you. I suspect that if uh, you know carbon dioxide wasn't an odorless, colorless uh, gas, we probably would have acted to um, uh, deal with climate change a lot, a lot sooner, um, because we have made such a significant change um, to the air. And we seem to react to things like, uh, say, smog, which you can see. Um, a lot quicker than we do to to things that are invisible, but but equally uh, potentially dangerous, like uh, like carbon dioxide. We um, collectively, um, as humanity, are um, are transforming the planet, um, and we're not the first uh, life forms to to, to ever do this, um, but we're the first ones who are conscious, right? And so we could choose. Um, differently. Uh, you know, we don't have to be an asteroid that kind of hits the planet and resets all of biology, or we don't have to behave like a, uh, like an ice age, like the glaciers of an ice age and, and kind of terraform, uh, the entire planet, even if that's what we're doing now, um, because we can think about it, we can recognize it and we can, we can change things. Yes, absolutely. Now, reasons to be optimistic in terms of social change, as we've said, uh, social movements, um, social innovation, social entrepreneurs, social change. Um, what about government policy? And you started this book, uh, I guess, at a uh, what was a rising tide, at least, or a high tide of, of uh, certainly U.S. Uh, activism in terms of the government supporting uh, the, the environment in various different ways. Um, that has changed. Um, what was your sense writing the book of the, uh, the role that this had to play generally? Well, I've, I have joked that uh, uh, another possible name for the Anthropocene could be the uh, Trumpocene. And, you know, if we put his his name on it, then, uh, then perhaps he'll, he'll start to pay attention, uh, to these issues. Cause that seems to work, um, yes, in, yes. in other areas of his life. Yes. Um, and, and certainly, uh, uh, our, our current president, um, embodies many of the, uh, characteristics that kind of got us into the Anthropocene in the, in the, in the first place. That said, uh, some of these, you know, social changes, and economic changes are 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 not susceptible to um, kind of what government is in power in the U.S. or or China or the U.K. or or wherever you want to look. Um, they're secular trends, if you will. So, for example, here in the United States, are uh, sticking with climate change. Uh, our our uh, CO2 pollution has uh, gone down precipitously because we are transitioning away from coal. And, uh, and into natural gas, which, while still a fossil fuel, is a far less polluting uh, fossil fuel than, um, than coal. 
and uh, you know our uh, emissions are, are getting back to 1990 uh, levels, and that's um, uh, even without um, strong uh, government policy uh, to push it in that direction. That's really just economic um, incentives. And um, even more heartening are things like the fact that Texas, which is probably the reddest uh, state in the United States, uh, is uh, also the leader in wind power. And it's simply because it makes uh, economic sense. Texas is a is a windy, vast uh, place, and they invested in uh, in the power lines and the wind turbines, and and now they get a good chunk of their electricity from the wind. So they are uh, uh, cleaning up significantly, and uh, you see similar things in um, Trump voting states across uh, across the board. So it's kind of divorced from. Uh, politics. Now, of course, government incentives are important. The wind industry would not have gotten off the ground without uh, tax incentives and, and other things, though it doesn't necessarily need them need them now. Uh, same is true for, for solar or, or nuclear or whatever your uh, favored fossil fuel alternative uh, might be. Uh, so I'm not trying to say that government policy isn't important. And certainly what we need governments to do is invest in the kind of um, unstructured uh, research that can deliver um, uh, huge breakthroughs um, that we can't even uh, foresee because some of those will be needed. So, for example, I read about uh, a government program here in the United States called ARPA-E, which stands for the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy. Uh, it is meant to um, invest in kind of very strange energy projects that might have uh, a huge impact. So one of my favorites is um, this kind of strange program called Electrofuels. Uh, what does that mean? It means how do we harness uh, biology, these tiny little uh, microorganisms that actually can turn um, electricity and, and CO2 into um, usable uh, fuels for cars. And the like, and if that could be, uh, if there could be breakthroughs there, and that could be scaled up, then that could be an alternative um, uh, to gasoline, uh, and something to compete with uh, Elon Musk's vision of uh, of an electric car future. Um, so, if we could get governments to kind of um, fund that uh, open-ended uh, research in energy, we might be a lot better off. But of course, that's a little bit more difficult. Uh, when folks don't necessarily even believe in the underlying uh, problem, as uh, as we're not quite sure uh, what Donald Trump thinks about uh, thinks about climate change, uh, we're pretty sure we know what he thinks about uh, female empowerment, though. Yes, yes, and uh, whatever about climate change, also recognition of the the fundamental role that this government investment has had in the technological revolutions that we've seen in recent years in the United States and so many of the technologies from, you know, Park and, and, and other areas all came out of, or many came out of, spun out of, you know, uh, research programs that were funded by the US government, not least of the, which the, the ARPANET and the internet and, and related things. But that is something that's a story not often told. That's right. And uh, one of the aspects of that story uh, is that you know, one of the reasons the government um, uh, funded all this stuff was uh, military needs. Yes. Um, that sounds uh, ominous, but uh, uh, this is also true in green energy. Um, the reality is that uh, the U.S., you know, flies, uh, flies uh, jets around on uh, fossil fuels purchased from, from some of the countries that we are, in fact, um, bombing, and uh, the military is uh, aware enough to know that that's probably not sustainable and uh, uh, is looking for alternatives, whether that be, uh, you know, solar power to help kind of U.S. military bases be kind of self-sufficient uh, for electricity, not dependent on, uh, you know, whatever the surrounding conditions might be, or, uh, you know, uh, tanks and jets that can fly on uh, it can drive or fly on uh, biofuels um, that are not reliant on, um, you know, say, oil imported um, from the Middle East. Um, so, 
you know, that may not be the best of, uh, of human nature, but it has uh, delivered some significant breakthroughs in the past, whether you want to talk about uh, the GPS that lets us uh, find each other in cities or, or the Internet um, or, or things of that nature that just came out of uh, military research in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Hopefully some of the military research of the 90s, you know, 2000s, and today will, uh, you know, kind of pave the way for this alternative energy future. Right. That's uh, very interesting. Um, and I guess also bearing in mind that the, notwithstanding the rhetoric from various parts of the U.S. government, the military has always had a very wary eye on the risks associated with climate change. And they certainly don't underestimate the, the challenges uh, that we face there. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, you, you speak to um, even James Mattis, uh, our new secretary of defense under under Trump. Uh, has acknowledged that um, you know climate change is, is is what they call a threat multiplier in that it makes uh, bad things uh, worse. Um, and often the military will point to the situation in uh, in Syria as an example of of how climate change can exacerbate um, you know underlying tensions. Um, what with the drought that kind of um, helped kick off this horrible humanitarian uh, crisis that has now. Uh, in many ways, uh, reshaped uh, the politics of, of all of Europe, um, and that's uh, that's just a small taste of what uh, what we might face um, when climate change gets uh, gets really bad if we if we don't do anything about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I want to talk about geoengineering, something you touch on in the book. What's your view on geoengineering? A very controversial and and, and topic of the moment. I was going to say, Syria wasn't controversial enough for you. Now you want to uh, <laughs> kick, kick, kick it up a notch. Um, yeah, so nope, no pressure. is, uh, for those who don't know, is this idea that, uh, well, we've been kind of um, unwittingly transforming planetary scale systems. So dumping CO2 in the atmosphere and, and, and changing climate, dumping CO2 in the atmosphere and, and changing the acid levels of the ocean, uh, you know, making nitrogen fertilizer and changing the entire nitrogen cycle. We've done that all unwittingly. So perhaps we should think about doing things wittingly and geoengineering would be kind of large scale interventions in various earth systems, whether that be ocean circul circulation or, or the atmosphere or you name it, uh, to, to affect a change. And most often this gets invoked in in the climate change arena because uh, we have done not enough to address that challenge. Um, and so the ideas are, well, there are two types of geoengineering. There are the kinds that, like I mentioned, suck uh, carbon dioxide back out of the sky. Those tend to be relatively uh, safe, but also incredibly slow. And then there are those that uh, attempt to block uh, sunlight so as to uh, avoid the extra heat that that CO2 would otherwise trap. And that uh, goes by the terrible uh, name solar radiation management, uh, which, which sounds like something out of a, a Bond novel, I guess. Um, and those tend to be fast acting, uh, but uh, have all kinds of potential unintended uh, consequences that we're not really quite sure of. And the argument that rages right now is, do we need to use these? But also, how can we be prepared to use some of these uh, techniques um, in a way that is, uh, or how can we know what the ramifications are? Um, because unfortunately, some of these solar radiation management techniques, um, such as hazing the stratosphere um, with, with various kinds of particles, are relatively cheap, uh, and by relatively cheap, I mean on the scale of kind of military budgets, if you will. Um, so billions of dollars, but then again, there are individual human beings who have billions of dollars, and therefore, you know, if they were to purchase uh, a fleet of jets and, uh, and and get, I don't know, the sulfur from Canada's uh, tar sands, they could embark on an individual geoengineering project. And uh, the only thing to stop them would be, I guess, uh, the various uh, militaries of the world. You, um, that's not likely to happen. But what is perhaps more likely to happen is that some individual nation will decide that they don't like what's happening to them 
under climate change, um, let's say China, and uh, uh, will undertake um, some kind of either experiment uh, or, or geoengineering program and, and what would be in place uh, to stop them short of uh, all-out, uh, you know, conflict. Um, and the, the problem with those um, solar radiation management techniques is that they have a real impact on the weather, as you won't be surprised to learn. And uh, so if China was to try to kind of tweak the atmosphere to make climate change a little less bad for them, they might affect, say, the rainfall patterns in India. And India might not like that very much and uh, might, you know, intervene to, to, to stop what, what China is doing. Um, so these, these planetary scale interventions um, could quickly uh, get out of hand while um, at the same time we seem to be uh, potentially heading towards a future where we might need a little solar radiation management to buy time. Uh, if you will, to address the underlying problem, which is this uh, excess CO2 that we've dumped in the atmosphere. So it's a it's a pretty scary prospect. Um, I, I you know it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to do the uh, solar management um, at this point because uh, of the unintended consequences and 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 the real fundamental problem that you would never be able to stop. Um, once you started doing this, you would have to continually say, haze the sky um, until the underlying problem was solved. So it doesn't get at the core of the problem. Uh, that said, the other geoengineering technologies, the ones that do address uh, CO2 pollution in the atmosphere, those do seem to be required. Uh, but the good news on that front is that there's an amazing technology that removes CO2 from the atmosphere each and every day, and they're called plants. Um, so, uh, and we know they're benign. So, uh, uh, there is hope on that front too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, low tech solutions, no tech solutions. What did you get sense the the lay of the land, the cli the climate, the, the the appetite for geoengineering generally? Do you find did you find people quite uh, becoming keener, or were there any particular groups that? Uh, were and I'm just wondering also in the sense of the financing financial side of these these uh, innovations and so forth, um, how they get funded and what kind of returns that if it's private capital in some cases that is going to support this, uh, what kind of returns that they would expect? Yeah, it's a it's a huge uh, challenge, and this is where governments um, would be required, particularly on the CO two removal side. So the irony on the CO two removal side is that. The projects that have occurred uh, outside of plants, uh, which happen all the time on their own, yay plants, um, uh, the projects that have occurred have all been financed um, via, uh, at least in the United States and, and, and largely around the world, via some kind of uh, product cycle. So the CO2 either goes into a greenhouse, uh, say, to help uh, plants uh, grow better, uh, the CO2 gets turned into... Um, uh, gets used as, as lime or carbonate, uh, that kind of thing. Or, um, worst of all, the biggest projects actually use the CO2 as a uh, fluid fluid to flush out more oil. Um, that seems to be the easiest way to make an economic return um, on CO2 removal. But, of course, once you flush out more oil, that oil gets burned and you end up with uh, CO2 in the atmosphere again. So we haven't quite figured out the CO2 removal side of things. And on the solar radiation management side of things, it's really more of a, it's, it's hard to see the business case for that. It's really yes. more of yes. a, of a um, you know, an intervention that might be undertaken by a, by a government. Um, and that's why it quickly goes to these <laughs> dystopian uh, scenarios of, uh, you know, a rogue billionaire or a rogue nation um, uh, doing this because it's hard to see how you would make money from hazing um, the stratosphere. Maybe via some insurance product or avoided uh, risks, but um, I would imagine that uh, uh, it would be hard to find counterparties um, for that for that particular risk. Yes, yes, indeed. Now I want to ask you about the SDGs. They presumably weren't in place 
when you started writing the book and they have, you know, we, we've now had COP21 and uh, just this massive commitment uh, around the world because um, you talked about the challenge, I guess, the tr trade-off in, in many cases of, of different goals and uh, the challenge of uh, approaching this in an integrated way. I don't know uh, whether you have any thoughts on that. Well, uh, so two things on that. One is the United Nations is actually undertaking an effort to deal with uh, geoengineering um, because it is recognized in the in the scientific community and um, and in the kind of governance community that uh, that this is a significant challenge that could uh, get out of control if we don't um, start thinking about it now before anybody does anything um, drastic. Uh, and as you, this in some ways was touched off by the fact that um, uh, a few years ago, a, um, uh, a wannabe geoengineer uh, in Canada uh, actually went out to sea and, uh, and uh, fertilized the ocean. Uh, so essentially kind of um, trying to harness the tiny little microscopic plants of the sea to help deal with our, our CO2 problem, which isn't a, a terrible idea. The problem was that he kind of did it on his own and without uh, government or, or scientific oversight. And uh, people were a little bit freaked out to see that, uh, you know, one guy and a, and a fishing crew could kind of interfere with the global climate. Um, so th th that's why the UN has decided it's time to start thinking about these things, because there, there are uh, examples. Um, as far as you know, the sustainable development goals and the United Nations system uh, more generally, unfortunately, uh, kind of as presently constituted, the United Nations is a perfect example of uh, this kind of siloing of problems that uh, that I that I talked about. So you might be uh, interested in, in in water quality goals or, or the ocean goals and uh, you're not necessarily making the link to, um, you know, energy poverty or poverty goals um, and how the two are, are, are interrelated. Uh, you know, we're, we're, as I mentioned before, you know, there's still uh, more than a billion people without access to modern energy that, um, that leads to deforestation, which exacerbates uh, climate change and, uh, uh, you know, uh, has all these other kind of knock-on consequences for human health. And, and everything else, and that problem, if we don't solve that problem correctly, then we will make climate change uh, infinitely worse. And if we try to solve climate change by uh, limiting, I don't know, access to modern energy for, for various peoples uh, around the world, I don't think that's going to go down too well either. Um, and unfortunately, we're not, we're not we're still not thinking about it in those terms. And that's why I'm hopeful, you know, that a book like mine or this idea of the Anthropocene can kind of uh, help people realize that we really do need to think about it in this kind of integrated, holistic way, or we're never truly going to get a handle, um, you know, on these, uh, on these inter interrelated challenges that we really do need to solve if we're going to have a better Anthropocene, one in which, you know, human civilization, however you want to define that, uh, you know, still exists in some form or another, uh, you know, a couple centuries from now, a couple millennia from now. And, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, that, that, that should be the goal. Uh, that's probably the goal of sustainability, and uh, it's certainly the goal of a, of a better Anthropocene. Absolutely, absolutely. You've been uh, in the coalface, down at the coalface for many years. You've been uh, working with and, 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 and seeing firsthand what's happening around the world. It's a, a ma major project. Are you optimistic, David? In the end, I think uh, on balance, I am optimistic because uh, there are so many amazing people around the world uh, doing amazing things. And I'll just give you... Um, one example, uh, it may not be the most hopeful example, but it's an important one. I traveled to a uh, tiny little coastal city in, uh, in China called Rizhou. Um, it's actually a beach community, so it's a place where it's a beach resort town, if you will, uh, if you can imagine that in China. Um, yes, they have algae blooms, but it's also a place where you can you know, bring your family and, and swim in the oceans. 
Uh, and there is a, a bureaucrat there by the name of Han Chongwei, and he has been tasked uh, with turning Rizhou, this, uh, this resort town, carbon neutral, um, which means that it will emit no more carbon dioxide than it kind of takes in or destroys. And so they're trying all kinds of experiments from kind of the circular economy where the waste of, uh, of one industrial process becomes the, the feedstock of another, uh, you know, to you know, command and control pollution measures to try to get this carbon neutral idea off the ground. And the way that things work in China is that if you can get, if Fan can get something like this working in Rizhou, then it gets scaled up maybe to other bigger cities like uh, Qingdao, which is just up the coast, or possibly to the provincial level. Uh, Rizhou is in Shandong province, um, because that's how they do things um, in China. They kind of run these little experiments at the, at the local level, and then if they work, they scale them up. Um, that's how China is about to embark on the, the world's largest uh, um, carbon trading regime, um, which will kind of uh, overnight uh, put a price on uh, a large portion of the world's uh, CO2 pollution. Um, so there is, there is hope, and it's, uh, it's coming from some of the places that seem, uh, perhaps from the news, um, the most hopeless because of the airpocalypse and the many other things. But that's actually the spur um, that is causing people like Fan to try to, to, to remedy these problems. And that's what makes me optimistic. Right. Yes. Well, good reason. It's, it sounds like a very interesting uh, project and certainly a very important one again and again. Uh, putting a price on carbon seems like a very smart and, and crucial step towards uh, stopping uh, carbon emissions, uh, certainly valuing carbon emissions correctly. What's next for you, David? You've worked uh, hard on this book. It's uh, your, your, uh, and, and that's, you know, you, you, you've got your day job as well. Um, <laughs> what, was there an area that you thought I've really got to come back and really cover this in depth? Or are you, you, you having a break? What, what's on the horizon? I am definitely still covering kind of all the things in this book. I'm currently, you know, working on an article actually about, uh, I mentioned iron fertilization uh, earlier. There's actually um, a uh, potential uh, second go-round of that experiment uh, in Chile, um, of all places. And so I'm kind of uh, reporting on that, um, but also, you know, watching what Elon Musk is up to, keeping tabs on my friend Fan, because uh, uh, as you can imagine, going carbon neutral anywhere is extremely difficult, but it's particularly difficult in, uh, in China. Uh, so I'm definitely continuing to report on the, uh, on the issues um, in this book. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, how do you, uh, how do you top the Anthropocene? What should the, what should the next project be? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to top it, but, uh, but I will try. Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, I wish you the very best success with your continuing the great work that you're doing. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and the, the, your, the, your views and perspectives on these really important questions and the work that you've done in your book. Uh, thank you. Thanks for the in-depth conversation. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.